But I want to dive in today, and I mentioned in the e-news that um, this is an important six weeks for us, uh, six weeks that I've been uh, battling and working with for the last probably six months, and I think it's some of the most important teaching that we've done to date because we're going to be casting vision for who, who we're called to be. Uh, as a church, who we're called to be as individuals in this church that are walking with Christ, who has God called us to be? And the only place I know to start is to go back to the one that we are to be image bearers after, and that is Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today is look at a passage that really uh, shows the heart of our Father in heaven and shows the heart of Jesus. But if there's one thing that is, that is so true, whether it be about uh, the local church today, it's close to the Father's heart. It is ever close to the Alliance movement. It's why we, the Alliance movement even started in the first place. And it's going to be ever close, as it already has been for decades, ever close to our heart. And it's this idea that people, people matter to God. Like you are the, you are the, the, the point of his affection and his love. And, and even take it to another level that lost people matter to God. That the one that is far from God, that's doing their own thing, running down their own path, and then they have that crisis moment in life, and they come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's nothing that brings more joy to our Father in heaven than that. And there's one thing that to be true, it, it is this, is that we believe, as all Christians believe, that everybody spends eternity somewhere. That someday there's going to be that day our lives are, are, are going to come to an end, and we will spend eternity Somewhere. So what's at stake? It's a big, big deal. Eternity is on the line for us to do it right, for us to do it well, for us to be image bearers of Jesus well. Because what else does the Bible say? It says that our life is like what? It's like a mist. It's like a vapor. Our life is here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And for those in this room that have experienced the pain of loss, you know far too well that to be true. You know that to be true. So because of that, we created, why does Centerville Community Church even exist? We created a purpose statement that I want to share with you, and it'll be up on the screen, for the why of why Centerville Community Church. It's because we believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the local church is God's plan to point people to Him. Because of this, Centerville Community Church exists so that everyone all-encompassing, no one's off-limits, everyone will experience new life in Christ. That's what we're about. That's why we want to do what we do, is to help people experience new life in Christ. And the foundational thing that we will do to help us get there is that Jesus will be at the center of everything that we do. We will do everything on purpose. We will do everything because of. That's what he tells us to do, to follow the path that Jesus has laid for us. It's foundational in what we do. And in Luke 15 today, we're going to see something that, that, uh, that is so close to, to God's heart. And I hope when you leave today, um, you take it with you and use it as a point of reference that God has called me, little me, to be a searcher, to be my eyes and ears up, ready to see the one that is lost and point them towards the Savior. But I want to ask this question. If, if Jesus truly is the hope of the world, and if we truly believe that the local church is his plan to get this incredible gospel message out to the world, why is it so hard for us as Christ followers to share the gospel with someone? Why is it so hard for us as Christ followers to invite somebody to church, right? We, we will invite them to a game. I'll invite somebody out to eat. 
I'll invite somebody to a movie or to come over to the house, but to invite them to church, that's like a whole new level. And I think the reason why we often shy away from that is fear. Fear of what they'll experience. Fear of, man, what if they don't like it, you know? And we, 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 we give in to fear in so many areas, and, and the enemy wins the day, and we just fail to invite. But I truly believe, church, if we grabbed a hold of what we're going to hear today, if we grabbed a hold of the mission that God has called us to, that he will unleash his spirit on this church like no other time in history. And I don't say that lightly, but when we get in the game and we're on mission with what he's called us to, Look out because God wants to do a work. Let me share, just to reemphasize, um, the power of what's at stake. This, the, the stats I'm about to share with you are stats that uh, are really, if you wanted to label churches, you could, or churches that didn't live out what we're going to talk about today. And there was a study done uh, by Francis Schaefer in the Institute of Church Leadership Development. And some of these stats are a tad dated, um, but most of them are, are within the ballpark and very accurate. That every year, more than 6,000 churches close their doors compared to just over 1,000 new church starts. Is it because God's changed? God stinks? God's not relevant? I don't think so. 6,000, I've heard closer from church planters today. It's probably closer to 10,000 churches that close their door, maybe one to two that plant. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. This translates to people just saying, I don't need the church much. I don't need the church at all. So they're on the roster. They're in the church's database. Uh, but 2.7 million, I would even argue that it's bigger than that. Of those that have said, well, church was once important to me, but now I don't see much point. From 2000 to 2010, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the USA declined by almost 5 million members, nearly 10%, while the U.S. population went up 24 million, almost 11%. At the turn of the last century in 1900, when your forefathers were walking this earth, uh, there were 27 churches to, to every 10,000 people. Today, at the year 2000, when it hit, um, we have 11 churches to every 10,000 people. The United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. In essence, the United States is being the unreached people group. And missionaries are being sent here. One of the most sobering stats is one that he shared at the end, and I would argue that it's even greater, and I hate to even say that. That half of all churches in the USA did not add one new member in the last two years, and around 50% of those same churches saw no baptisms or salvations in the last year. What a staggering stat! It's sobering. To think what in the world happened to the local church. If it's, if it's truly believed that the local church is the hope of the world, then how are we ever seeing stats like this about the local church in America and around the world? I believe it to be true that if you were to go around Centerville today and knock on doors and ask, people aren't refusing Jesus. They're not refusing God's word and God. The thing that they're pushing away is the church has become, in a way, irrelevant to them. So they see no point in showing up to the local church. And I read through the New Testament. Many of you have read through Scripture multiple times that it's exact opposite with Jesus. Jesus was almost attractional to those outside the church. He hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners. He went to their home and he ate with them. And while they were literally nothing like him, the most holy, the most righteous man to ever walk this earth, 
And the people that were the most unholy, the most unrighteous, felt like there was a connection. Who were the ones that despised him? Who were the ones that tried to put tough questions on him and spin it so that they could get him in a tough spot? It was the religious people. And Jesus didn't fit with the religious people, but he fit with the unreligious people. And the sad thing is, is it's kind of the opposite in the church today. That most people outside the church uh, would not come in and be around Christians and say, well, I fit with that group, you know. And here's the tragedy with that, is that the local church is the actual, it's the body of Christ, the Bible says, that the closest anyone human will ever get to Jesus Christ's actual physical being is is coming to be a part of, of us. We make up the local church, not all these buildings around the world. Is to be, with the, uh, to be with the local church, the closest they'll ever get to experiencing Jesus. That's a huge tragedy. And that's why over these next six weeks, it's going to be such a big deal that we continue to go back to stay on mission and all we do. And today is the foundation of all of that. That we have to truly shift our thinking. Because often we think the church will ex- exist for me, for my wants, my desires, my style, my feel, my, the color, and all that stuff. But we have to shift our thinking to realize, no, 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 no. You and I... We are the church, and we exist for the world. It's not the opposite. The local church doesn't exist for us, for all of our needs and preferences and wants. Well, I'm going to share today a story in in Luke 15, and Jesus shares uh, three little stories, the the, the parables that you've heard, if not a thousand times, maybe two thousand times. But I want you to listen with fresh ears today and, and watch how Jesus interacts with these people. Watch how he talks to them. And any time in Scripture Jesus reemphasizes something three times, it's like, perk your ears up because he has something to say to us and to the church. So to understand these three stories, you've got to understand who he's talking to in these three stories. And it tells us in Luke 15, verse 1, Jesus is gathered with a group of people and they're about to be addressed. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. I love this part. I love to think that you as a Christ follower, that me as a Christ follower, that those outside the church would would not only uh, be comfortable being around us, but they would like being around us. That me saying, well, I'm a pastor, wouldn't be offensive, but they would actually bring us in. I hope we always stay at that place. I hope you stay at that place with your workplace and with wherever you may go. But during that time, the tax collectors were a despised group of people. I don't know if much has changed. I hope there's no tax collectors in here. And not, not much has changed in 2018, right? We don't, we're not fond of tax collectors. But especially back then, they weren't fond because they were selling out to Rome. They were ripping people off. They were lying to them just so they could get ahead. And everybody knew it. And they were a despised, despised group of people. And in Luke 15, 2, it says this made the Pharisees, and that Jesus is even speaking to them. It says it made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Whoa, what are you doing, Jesus? And here's what they were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The most holy man to ever walk the earth. The son of the living God. Spending time with people that don't even care about anything he has to say in that moment. But they liked him. What are the Pharisees doing in this moment? So he has two different crowds. The Pharisees, it says that they are in this passage, they're complaining. Some of you have different versions as you open them up. It may say that they were muttering. They're over in the corner just jabbering. You can almost picture it, just jabbering to each other. They're elitist, thinking that they've got the world by the tail when it comes to this religious stuff. And they're asking the questions, why in the world... 
Why would Jesus be speaking to them? Why would he even be interacting with them? They want nothing to do with him, right? Why would, the, why would they like being around Jesus, you know? The, the religious people are probably thinking, hey, we, we try to talk about holiness and righteousness and following all these laws all the time, and people don't care, but Jesus shows up and starts to talk about these things, and all of a sudden, he's a rock star, and they want to be around him. So Jesus, he lays the groundwork of who he's speaking to. We read in Luke, and then he, he starts sharing these three stories, and he connects with the crowd in an awesome way, Luke 15, 3 through 4. So Jesus used this illustration. If you had 100 sheep and, and one of them strayed away and was lost in the wilderness, wouldn't you leave the 99 others and go search for the lost one until you found it? It didn't matter which side of the aisle you're on now, whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person, they would have understood this. Well, yeah, if you lose one of your sheep and the other 99 are okay in the pen, if you will, we're going to go find the one, right? Because the one that's unsecure is of utmost importance. We have to find this one sheep and bring it home. You know this to be true in your own life as well. When you have something that's lost, does that thing not become the most important thing in that moment that you have to find? And all the secure things that you know where they're at, you're not even thinking about them because you don't care. You want to find that lost thing. Last Sunday after service, actually between services, I realized I can't find my phone, can't find my keys anywhere. Um, just wanted to see if you know, was Nat texting about the baby, anything, and couldn't find it. So I thought, well, I'll look for it after second service. And you know what it's like when you can't find your phone and keys? Does anybody else go, go in panic mode? So I'm running out to the car. I'm, I'm notorious for locking the key and you know, leaving it in the ignition. I thought, man, did I do that? I was bringing knocks in. I could have had stuff and, 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 and completed that. And they weren't in there. So I was where Jeff is uh, during second ser- first service last week. Uh, and in second service, I scooted up a row because that, that row got filled up. And I left all my keys in that row. And I looked everywhere in this church looking for this thing that was lost. And I, if I just would have looked over one more row, it was there. 40 minutes of looking. How many of you have you lost your phone? You've done that. Your makeup bag. I don't know what it may be. Your, your, your keys. Uh, a child. Anybody go to a store and like 20 seconds in? And it feels like it's two or three years where did he go? We have to find him. It's panic mode. Parents looking all over for their children. And Jesus is letting this group know as well, man, you want to know why I spend all my time with the tax collectors, with sinners, with people that seem to be so far away from me because in our Father's eyes, they are lost. And I came to do the will of my Father. And why would I spend all my time with everything else that's secured? The key? Why would I spend my time with the keys to my other car? But I got one that's completely, completely lost. And Jesus shares this story with them. And I I can only imagine the responses to this group of people. But Jesus is reminding them once again that why did he come to this earth? I came to seek and to save the lost. You've heard that. He goes on in Luke 15, verse 5 through 7. And he shares this specifically with them. And hey, when the sheep's found, when the keys are in the third pew... Uh, when we find those, we're going we're gonna to joyfully carry it home on, on our shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven when one lost sinner who repents. Christians don't really like this verse, but we don't say it. Uh, that one lost sinner comes to Christ, then God, over the 99 others who are righteous, all the good church people that have not strayed away. And we get this credible picture of the heart of God. I think he likes when we get together and sing songs. 
when we go through his word and when we have events and discipleship groups, but you want to know what really gets your God excited? When that one that's so distant from him, that one that's just doing its own thing and thinks, I can get through life without Father God, and then they have that crisis moment and they say, man, God, I realize my sin has caused a huge chasm between you and I. I repent and I turn to you. Church, heaven, heaven rejoices when that happens. And Jesus lets this group of people know that, that this is why, Pharisees, I spend all my time with tax collectors and go eat with them and eat with the sinners and show them love. He goes on and he reaches out to another group of people that sure there were many in the crowd that a lot of the men and different cultures during that time thought were just property and he speaks to the women. He speaks to the women and he wraps his arm around a group of people that, that, uh, that have just been marginalized in a way. Men would never address women in public during this time and Jesus goes against all of that and he addresses the women in Luke 15 verse 8. He shares another little story to prove his point of how important the lost one is. He says, there's suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now these aren't coins in your pocket. Uh, women during this time... Uh, their father, or, or the significant male in their life, if the father wasn't around, would have given them, uh, would have been almost like an engagement ring, but it was a headdress with 10 coins going around their head. And you can pop the picture up on the screen. I'm not sure if that's like completely accurate, but it gives you the idea. And if this woman would, would lose one, maybe two or three of these coins in the headdress, they would not dare leave the house for it would humiliate not only themselves, it'd humiliate the dad, it'd humiliate the entire family. So it goes on in this passage with that in mind, and it says, won't she light, light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? She wouldn't dare leave without that coin around her head. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. And then Jesus says it again. He said in the same way, there's more joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. So just as this lady would search and search and search and wouldn't dare leave in the home until she found this one lost coin, Jesus is letting this crowd know, hey, our, our Father in heaven, he sent me on a search mission. And I've come to this earth so that I can seek and save the lost. And when that one comes to me, he said, heaven throws a party like you would not believe. Imagine the reactions in the audience. The teachers of the law, some of them probably really angry. Maybe some are like, oh, I'm starting to get it, you know. Some are probably thinking, why does he keep referring to me as lost? I don't need to be labeled as that. All kinds of reactions, all kinds of emotions as Jesus is sharing with this group of people. And then he goes on and he talks about a very important subject. And he moves it from something being lost physically, the lost coin, the lost sheep to something lost relationally. And he changes gears a little bit with this group of people and he tells the story of the, of the prodigal son. A story that you've heard on, a, a, it'd be a sermon in and of itself to share the whole, so we're gonna paraphrase as much as we can. I want you to picture this, a dad uh, is just doing the best he can. And his son comes to him and uh, I don't know how old he would have been during this time, maybe teenage years, and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because when you're dead, I get my inheritance, I'll get half the stuff. I'll get a little bit and my brother would. 
Imagine the audience during this thinking, where in the world could this story be going? And so this dad says, all right, this sounds like a pretty noble thing. Here's your inheritance. I'll give you your money, and you can take off and and do what you need to do. Why did dad do this? Because he knew where his son was physically. He knew where his son, probably I even think where he was going to be going. But relationally, it was completely, completely missing. Think of how crazy this week if you went into work. And somebody at lunchtime said, you're not going to believe this, but this weekend my teenage son said he wished I was dead. And uh, he said, could I have my inheritance? And I looked at him and said, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to give it. You would look at them and think you are absolutely crazy. But that's how much the dad wanted to connect with the son. It's how much the, 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 the dad longed to be with the son. And you know the story. It goes on. The son takes off to the big city, whatever the big city was, and, and just squanders it all spends all of his money, lives this incredibly wild life. The family knows about it. The dad knows about it. The entire community knows about it. And he finds himself in a horrific spot. How many times has this story played out in humans' life over the century? I mean, just day after day, right? And so he found himself in a tough spot. He found himself in isolation. It said there was a famine in the land. And this young man found himself working on a pig farm. You ever had a moment in your life where you absolutely blow it and then you feel like you start running conversations in your head like you're them and you and you're going back and forth. How can I reconnect with them? How can I make this right? The son is doing that and he's thinking, man, I could go back to dad and and say, uh, you know, I I don't even need to be your son anymore. I'll just be a servant. Uh, You don't even have to take me in. I'll just serve. You don't even acknowledge me as the son when I come back. And this son hit one of the most horrific crisis moments he'd probably ever faced. And he goes on, and it says in Luke, uh, in verse 20, Luke 15, verse 20, he finally did come and, and return home to his father. And while he was still a long distance away, you can just picture this scene, it's incredible. His father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. And was he doing it because he was back home physically? I'm sure he was. But the dad was embracing and kissing his son because now... Now he knows where they are relationally. He'd been praying for his boy. I'm sure the audience was shocked once again. You're going to bring your son back into your home that just did that to you and your family and all of your resources and wealth? What in the world? Verse 21, it says he ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, just picture Jesus sharing this, bring the finest robe in the house house and put it on him. Get a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. Why? Verse 24 tells us, for the son of mine was dead. Spiritually, he was bankrupt, Jesus says. And now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. I have to think a lot of the audience is finally starting to get it. After three times, Jesus sharing this same story three different ways to help them know the power of someone that's lost that comes back to the Father. I want to ask the question this morning, if you feel like you're at this place where you've been, you may consider yourself even a Christian, but you've been running for God, running from God for quite some time. Maybe intentionally or unintentionally. 
Uh, maybe you just feel like there's this great chasm. You go to church. You'll say, I mean, do some of the Christian things we're supposed to do. But relationally, it's, it's not where it needs to be. And I think the spirit of the living God at times convicts us of that. Sometimes we have people that encourage us towards that. And I, I want to encourage you today that we serve a God, and this picture of this story proves it. If you're at that spot, he would love to have you back. He's like the dad at the gate at the homestead with his arms wide open saying, welcome home, daughter. Welcome home, son. I would love to be in relationship with you. Often, the reason why we're not instantly running back is because we think God's with his arms crossed at the gate, kind of peeking over like Wilson on Home Improvement. Anybody like that show? Thinking, oh, here he comes. What do we need to say to set him right, you know? That's what we think of God. Or we think God's going to be at the gate just kind of waving his finger at us with the whole list of all the dumb things we've done over the last 5, 10, 20 years and just reminding us that, well, you, you have fallen short after all. But this story proves to us that we have a God that is in heaven with arms wide open. And he's saying, I've forgiven you completely and I've forgiven you fully. Welcome home. You can go on. You've heard the story with the older son. The older son gets ticked about it, and he reemphasizes again the dad that, no, 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 no. Our son was lost. Now he's home, and we need to celebrate this. You know, I was thinking about this whole story and, and Jesus re- speaking to these people, and if he was just to sum up a few sentences to this group, he's in essence saying, you know what, Pharisees? Religious people, teachers of the law, you want to know why I spend all my time with tax collectors and sinners? You want to know why I go to their home and eat? I know it goes against everything you religious people want me to do. It's because they are lost and they are front and center with the affection and the heart of my Father in heaven. Church, I think to the degree we get this and to the degree we practice this, we will see an unleashing of the Holy Spirit on Centerville Community Church like never before in our history. I'll say the shadow side of that. To the degree which we miss the boat on this. To the degree which we think, wow, I'm not going to join my father in the search, right? I got things going on, things to do. I know it's close to the heart of God. Uh, We will miss out on God's best year after year after year, not only as a church but individuals. It's a big deal. We are the church. You and I, Christ followers all over this community and around the world, and we exist for the world. The church does not exist simply for you and I. I want to close with a couple application points. And it's, we've got two groups of people in here, one that's would lost and one that would be say, man, I've made a confession and I've put my faith in Christ. If you would say, man, I'm on the lost side today, and you're thinking, I don't like that term, being lost, Let me reframe that term for you. The fact that our Father in heaven, that Jesus would say that you're lost, means that you are so, so valuable to him. You're the point of his affection. To the point where he said, you're so valuable to me that you're lost, that our God in heaven said, I'm not even going to send my son to die on the cross. That's how valuable you are to be labeled lost and him to say, you're number one in my heart. That's how much God loves you. That's why he went to the cross for you. For the rest of us in here that would say, I made a point to follow Jesus many years ago. I put my trust in him. I got one question, but it's a big question. 
It's a big application question. Are you joining your Father in heaven in the search? Are you joining your Father in heaven in the search? Let me close with this this illustration for you. I want you to picture your child, your most beloved child, and you're out camping, and there's a whole bunch of people with you, 20, 30, 40 people. Uh, It's starting to the sunset starting to come and every minute it's getting darker out at the campsite where you are with your, with your family. And as it gets darker, you realize you can't find your, your child anywhere. So you, when that happens, urgency is like, it's quick, isn't it? I mean, you, you, gotta, you gotta find your child. So it's getting dark and all of a sudden it gets really dark and you stand up on a log and you're telling everybody as they gathered around, hey, he's like five foot nothing, maybe 40 pounds, and he was wearing a green shirt, and he's got blonde hair, and, and he, was, he was on that path a little bit earlier, but we can't find him anywhere. Imagine the trembling in your voice that you can't find your young one. The group of people that you're talking to all head back to the campfire, begin to talk about, well, let's, how are we going to do this? You know, let's, let's start searching, and, and uh, they roast a few marshmallows, and they just go to bed. Next morning, they wake up and get breakfast rolling and and gather around the campfire a little bit more, and they start reading books on searching, get some experts in to talk about searching. Uh, They they pray about where could he be and start searching, but nobody does any searching. Imagine the frustration. Imagine the anger that you would have that nobody is joining you in the search. You'd be beside yourself. And I wonder every single Sunday... When our God in heaven looks down at Centerville, he looks down at Dayton, he looks down at this great country called the USA that we live in, and he looks around the world, and all these would-be searchers gather in chairs and pews and all kinds of different buildings, talk about searching, talk about God, that, man, we want to reach people for Christ, and then they leave the building, and very few, if any, do any searching at all. You think that crushes the heart of God? I don't have a verse for this, but I have a conviction this morning that for God, uh, for the ones that he's called to be searchers, Christ followers, you and I, for that group that ceases to do what he's called us to do, I think before long, I don't know when, but we'll eventually feel the absence of the one that's called us to be searchers. I think the stats I shared earlier prove that. Church is closing because their mission and their vision is all about themselves. Let me read this one more time why we exist. And we're going to sing an awesome song. We believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I think all of you would say that's right. He is. And the local church is God's plan to point people to him, not the, the organization, the Centerville Community Church, that or the, you, we, the church, the people that make it up, or God's plan to point people to him. Because of this, Centerville Community Church exists so that everyone will experience new life in Christ. So as you, as one individual that makes up this body, what's the focus of your attention? Are you joining your Father in heaven in the search? As we close with this song, I pray that a name will come to mind. Not two, not four, not five, because we'll, we'll, lose, we'll lose them in the weeds. Just one. Somebody that you know that's really struggling in their faith. Somebody that you know wants nothing to do with the faith. 
And for you during this next song, just to say, uh, commit them to prayer. There will be nothing that will keep you on point in your walk with Christ than every day praying for somebody to come to Christ. It's a game changer. It'll ignite your faith like never before because there's risk involved and it's tough stuff. Man, bring that person to mind. Join your Father in heaven in the search. He would love to have you.